0: Have you ever felt like you had to keep aspects of yourself hidden out of fear of how others might react? Have you ever been in places where you felt like you had to choose between expressing who you are and maintaining your professional persona? According to the American Time Use Survey, Americans spend an average of 8.7 hours, five days a week at work. 8.7 hours, five days a week, during which they occupy a role. Lawyer, doctor, teacher, chef podcast journalist, the list is endless. So what happens when stepping into the workplace means stepping into an environment where our personal lives, our identities, and our relationships have to be suppressed in order to achieve our professional goals. According to McKinsey and Company, one out of four LGBTQ plus Americans are not out at work with the percentages of LGBTQ plus women and individuals not in senior leadership being considerably lower than those who have quote-unquote made it. I'm Dara Lise Lyons, a bisexual journalist. Before we delve into today's topic, I'd like to acknowledge that I'm speaking to you today from the ancestral lands of the Lenape people, and to thank Indigenous people, past, present, and future, for their resilience and their contributions to a nation that was built on stolen land using stolen labor. This is episode 4 of season 3 of the Demystifying Diversity podcast, brought to you in partnership with Temple University's Fox School of Business Center for Ethics, Diversity and Workplace Culture, also known as Sedwick. This episode is Coming Out at Work: Stepping Out of the Corporate Closet. And I'd like to issue an important disclaimer. What I say to you today will be true to my current understanding, research, and conversations. But please know that with time and an evolution in understanding, some of this content may no longer be accurate in the future. Even now, the perspectives you'll hear only represent a small sampling of perspectives and experiences. And while that might be obvious, I felt the need to be explicit about the fluidity of knowledge and information. Because when it comes to issues of sexuality, gender, and LGBTQ plus identity, fluidity is a critical and foundational concept.
1: These things are very fluid. I think oftentimes people misunderstand a person going through their life and figuring it out and coming to better understand and know themselves, that they that they somehow think that when someone shows up and they say, this is who I know myself to be today, that if that's not consistent with who they were yesterday, that they were somehow being disingenuous, that they were pulling the wool over their eyes. Um, when really it's just us coming to better understand and to know what is arguably the most nuanced and complex and just mind-boggling thing that there is, which is ourselves.
0: That was AC Folks, the executive officer of Folks Consulting, an LGBTQ plus sensitivity and transgender inclusion consulting firm. A Black transgender psychologist and father, AC brings himself forward, personally and professionally. And he and I spoke about the ways in which fixed mindsets in the workplace can make it so that those experiencing shifts in their understanding of their identities don't feel comfortable being authentic with their colleagues, especially if their understandings of themselves change.
1: We're talking about work environments. So let's, let's just give some concrete examples. Gender identity is a really good example of this. There's this expectation that your gender identity is going to be fixed. That if you say, I am a man, then you are a man and a man, you shall be forevermore. Right. (laughs) And, you know, it's almost like being knighted or something. And so if you show up, you know, after being with this company for a few years and you say, you know, actually, I'm not a man. I'm, I'm a woman. There's this this collective gasp, this collective clutching of the pearls that happens, because how could that be? You must have known all the while and held that from us. And that's not necessarily the case. These things can be fluid, that we, we can be kind of figuring it out as we go. And that is okay, or at least it should be. And so I think it's really important for individuals to be able to show up and say, this is who I am today in this moment, in this space. This is why these conversations being continued conversations are so important. When individuals introduce themselves, utilizing their pronouns is important. Even if I have already known you and have always known you, because your pronouns might not be the same today that they were yesterday, and that's okay.
0: People's understandings of themselves often evolve over time. For instance, when we sat down for our interview in January of 2022, Sky Koaleski had not yet stepped into their current name, a name that conveys who they are today. Sky is a writer, director, facilitator, speaker, consultant, and therapeutic breathwork practitioner whose multidisciplinary approach supports people in showing up to the world as all of who they are. The two of us spoke about how important it's been for them to be able to share about the ways their self-conception has evolved and continues to evolve over time.
2: However my identity is shifting, however the ways that I understand it, I'm going to claim it because it's in the space between us, right? It's like, that's important. And then allowing people to show up to the table in the fullness of who they are is also across time. It's not just like I make one statement about who I am and then that's how we're always constantly engaged, right? Is being able to show up to the table with someone and saying like, I hold your expensive identity as cross time. I allow you to shift. I allow you to change. I allow you to be a full, fluid, complex human being who is Always transforming.
0: If we begin from the premise that people are vast and changeable, it's easy to see how important it is to create environments where, whoever we are, however we are, we can bring ourselves forward assuming we choose to do so. But saying we should be able to be our full selves is easy. Creating the structural safety and social support for people to do so is far more of a challenge. And while I will share some tips for how to foster more psychologically safe, more expansive environments that make it safe for LGBTQ folks and others to be more self-expressed at work, before we talk about what to do, let's talk about what not to do. Here's AC again.
1: We have a tendency to automatically kind of place people into boxes we we need to we're being bombarded with stimuli and we need to find ways to make things more simple and more succinct and so we automatically place people into boxes and categories so that we can make better sense of it it's really got nothing to do with them it has everything to do with our ability to make sense of this onslaught of stimuli that we have all the time inherent in that there is this tendency to superimpose identity on people.
0: Superimposing identities onto people strips them of their multidimensionality. And the practice of putting people into mental boxes has made it so that when people are difficult to categorize, they're often either categorized incorrectly or dismissed, devalued, or discriminated against. Liz Brown, associate professor law and taxation at Bentley University, who earned her BA from Harvard College and her JD from Harvard Law School, represented Fortune 100 companies for 13 years prior to joining Bentley's faculty. Liz told me that the tendency to want to categorize others can result in overt and implicit bias against those with non-binary identities.
3: Bias against non-binary people. Is still something that is a subject of emerging research. But anecdotally, non binary people experience, from what I understand, from what I've seen in in my studies and talking to my colleagues, they experience very high levels of discrimination because they can't be categorized, they can't be boxed, they can't be understood, they can't be oversimplified the way people are generally comfortable making SNAP decisions. And I mean that we all make snap decisions about other people. It's just really important to understand where those decisions come from, what prejudice they might be rooted in, so that we make sure we don't act in accordance with any prejudice that we might start to feel. So for non-binary people, I mean, the numbers of non-binary people in the workplace is increasing as there's more social acceptance of being non-binary as well as being transgender. There's a greater sort of social awareness, but it's such a fast-changing field that I think we still don't understand as much as we should.
0: Liz was referring to the lack of understanding of the experiences of non-binary folks in the workplace. But I think we can broaden the context of what she was saying, to think not just about the difficulty of categorizing other people, but about how many people dismiss categorizations that don't align with their own expectations. Isn't it lack of understanding and unwillingness to honor other people's truths about themselves that leads to things like misgendering? Here's A.C. again.
1: Being misgendered as someone who's transgender is something that is actually really painful. And it's more than just a a simple desire or even a gesture of respect. But we're really talking about the core essence of someone's being. You're talking about engaging in erasure. When you, when you don't get it right.
0: Calling someone by the wrong pronoun or the wrong name is like taking an eraser to who they are. And while it shows up in the words we use or don't use or say incorrectly, it's not just the language that's the issue. It's that the language reflects underlying assumptions and attitudes. Sky shared their experiences of being misgendered, including by well-intentioned, self-proclaimed allies.
2: I noticed the difference between like someone who is constantly correcting themselves from she to they, because it tells me that they still see me as a woman and that they're linguistically making the switch. But their brain hasn't actually understood me in the way that I am offering myself.
0: Lack of understanding shows up in a multitude of ways and results in a host of workplace consequences, including people losing their jobs. Armando X. Estrada, who everyone calls Axe, is an associate professor in the Department of Policy, Organizational, and Leadership Studies at Temple University. Axe previously served as a program manager and senior research psychologist with the Foundational Science Research Unit of the United States Army Research Institute for the Behavioral and Social Sciences. Before that, he served in the U.S. Marine Corps from 1987 to 1995, and he continues to be actively involved in the Society for Military Psychology. Axe told me that it was during his time in the military that the removal of a fellow Marine on the basis of his sexual orientation made him more aware of how identity-based discrimination can be used to discount a person's contributions to an organization.
4: One of the things that I experienced while in the Marine Corps during Desert Shield, Desert Storm, there was a, a fellow Marine that happened to be a gay individual and was discovered. And so the individual was promptly removed and kicked out of the military. And what was interesting about that is, much like you know many of my peers, I didn't have much experience and education with openly gay and lesbian individuals. Right. The point is at that point in society, there were strict views about uh, sexual minorities. Right. That that have obviously improved since that time. But but what was interesting for me was to reflect on that in terms of. The person, right? So I knew this person. They were a good person and good performer. And yet, despite all that information that we all knew, many of my peers began to engage in in sort of stereotypical behavior, discounting the contributions that the individual made, questioning the character of the individual, and denigrating anything related to to his accomplishments.
0: You might think that the experience of a gay Marine being sent home from service 20 years ago is an isolated incident, or that the military is somehow different than other environments. But that isn't true.
4: So I did my thesis looking at Marines' attitudes towards sexual minorities serving in the military. And so long story short there, the findings of that work were consistent with what we knew about other studies looking at similar issues outside of the military, right? So generally views were negative, right? But they weren't especially negative. And what was striking for me was the parallels of the findings because at the time there was widespread belief that the military was uniquely different and therefore we couldn't approach issues involving sexual minorities in the same way that we would do it in other contexts, right? But what the data showed is that the attitudes and thoughts and behaviors that service members expressed and engaged in were no different than the attitudes, behaviors, and thoughts of everyone else in society.
0: In American society, even though, according to a recent Gallup poll, 7.1% of the population identifies as a member of the LGBTQ plus community, LGBTQ Americans still aren't fully protected against discrimination in 29 of our 50 states. We pay taxes, we serve our country, we participate in the workforce and contribute to the world, and yet we're not assured the same safety and protection as our fellow non-LGBTQ citizens? Although he's safely and happily out at work now, Michael Shermer told me about how he faced discrimination after being outed in a previous job. Michael is an assistant professor of practice in the Marketing and Supply Chain Management Department at Temple University's Fox School of Business and faculty advisor to the Fox Online Student Association, with over 30 years of business and industry experience spanning a wide range of industries and operating environments.
5: I was outed at work without my being able to manage that process, which was a really uncomfortable thing for me, who's you know, tried to be on top of everything up to that point in his life. Now, ultimately, personally, things worked out well, and there were, there were a lot of folks that had no problem with it. But then there were people that, that did, and those were a lot of decision makers at the time. And, and so I really feel that that adversely affected my career with that company.
0: Michael said he has no regrets about where he is in his career or in his life now. And he said he's happy to be living in a place where he can walk down the street holding his husband's hand. But he reflected that early in his professional life, being seen with a partner was a threat to his professional aspirations and may even have interfered with his advancement.
5: I had met a, uh, a boyfriend at a work function. It was a work conference. As a large corporation, we're having this work conference. We happened to work in a different city, the same company, but different city. And so, you know, we started this long distance relationship and I had worked at that facility prior on, on a project. And so, you know, I knew some of the people, especially some of the, the higher ups, the higher ups in the organization there. And it was during one of the trips down to, to visit him that I remember I could even picture it now walking through the airport and on the left was my boyfriend, and then walking up behind him was one of the heads of the organization. And so I was like, oh, I can't do or, or say anything. And so it was just very transactional. Oh, hello, you know, and, and oh, you know him? Yes, and, and know each other. And then the question was, well, what are you doing here to me? And I thought, oh, well, you know, I had to think of my fears. Like, Oh, I'm coming down here to visit. It's supposed to be a nice weekend, blah, blah, blah. But when I was leaving, it was like, uh oh, you know, I think our cover was just blown here. And now ultimately I did apply for a transfer to that facility and wasn't going well. And and I got the sense that there was some resistance to have me come down for whatever reason. And, you know, looking back, it could have been the resistance could have stemmed from, from that interaction.
0: Several of the people I spoke to for this particular episode shared about bumping up against resistance to them being fully expressed in the workplace. They told me that other people's discomfort with their identity and or orientation left them with a difficult choice. Should they speak up or should they be silent? For Travell Anderson, silence was never even a consideration. Trevelle is an award-winning journalist and social curator who has dedicated their career to centering the stories of those in the margins, gray spaces, and the intersections of life. Named to the Roots 2020 list of the 100 most influential African Americans, Travell has made a name for themselves by being unapologetically themselves and paving the way for others to do the same. But self-expression has come at a cost.
6: I got in a lot of trouble because I'd be tweeting about this is during one of the many foolish elections we've had in my adulthood, and like just saying a variety of like reflections from my stance as a black queer non-binary person of trans experience about what I'm consuming in this debate or from this speech, and I'd get in trouble because I'd be literally I would be called into offices the next day because. They felt as if I was expressing political opinions, to which I would respond, this is only political in that you believe that I and my personhood is a problem. This gets into the conversations about the newsrooms. Like when I was at the LA Times, there was a whole big thing. When Pride here in LA rebranded itself as a resist march, quote unquote, during the Trump administration's foolishness in the White House, a memo was sent out saying that because Pride had been rebranded as a resist march, that we could not go to Pride. We could not go to Pride. So as you could imagine, there were a number of meetings. I told them in not so many words, I'm going to Pride. You can do what you want to do on your end about that because Pride has always been political, right? Pride has always been a protest. Now, whether you feel differently because you think it's this thing that is a party or whatever, that's filtered through your perspective as a cis person, as a straight person, as somebody who, in the large part, benefits off the commodification of our lives as queer and trans people. But for me, for my community, right, Pride has always been a protest. Visibility has always been a necessary tool to push back against all of the isms and obias that we deal with.
0: Travelle and I spoke about the dehumanization that is at the heart of isms and obias, and the ways in which racism, sexism, homophobia, etc., attempt to strip underrepresented folks of the right to share their stories.
5: We demystify diversity Making work is safe for you and me Shoulder to shoulder we embark Invite the light to send the dark Let's embrace one another Single colleagues, working mothers People of all points of view Can we see each other?
0: We also commiserated over how people often assume that LGBTQ plus stories and experiences are identical and interchangeable. Newsflash, cis straight folks, there is considerable diversity of experience and identity within the LGBTQ plus community, which was also something that came up in my interview with Caroline Heffernan, an assistant professor in the School of Sport, Tourism, and Hospitality Management at Temple University, whose areas of interest center around the application of allyship in sport and gender and sport leadership.
7: I do get a little bothered when I have to be asked to be the queer expert because specifically around trans issues, right? Just because I, I am a woman, I am a cis woman who has more masculine presentation. That doesn't mean that I understand the trans experience or the non-binary experience. And so I use my connection to the community to do my best to provide the understanding that I can. However, like. I'm not non binary or trans. I can't tell you what that experience is like.
0: Caroline is someone who values inclusion, education, and teamwork, which is why, despite her annoyance and despite it not being her job to educate others as to how to be allies, she often finds herself stepping into the de facto role of in house LGBTQ educator.
7: I will oftentimes do a little bit more if someone will ask me a question to figure out how can I support this colleague so that they have a better understanding or what can I send them? Even just trying to like get more of my colleagues to put their pronouns in their signature or to have their pronouns on zoom. There's one colleague who I've been trying to nudge for a few years. And I like, I just had a breakthrough with her around the importance of having her pronouns in her email signature. And it didn't necessarily come from a school-based conversation, but it was about her kids' school and She was like, I want this person to know that I'm an ally. And I was like, the way you do that is you do the thing I've been telling you to do for a while because she was like, this person looked like you, but their name was blank. My colleague was like, she didn't know that like, she was uncomfortable at the beginning. And I was like, yeah, because I'm sure that she opened up some Zoom and some parents did something awful to her. So the way that you communicate that you're an ally is you put your pronouns in your signature. And so it's recognizing the spaces where I have some type of, power, again, like my capacity, positionally, relationally, where do I have the ability to impact change? And so I've been trying to put myself in spaces where there aren't a lot of voices that are thinking about diversity, equity, inclusion, or thinking about the way that this impacts the broader collective and trying to bring how this decision over here, which you don't think has any connection to this issue that we're talking about culturally actually does because the decisions that we make perpetuate systems that have been used to exclude other people.
0: These past few years have really illuminated how important it is to care for our health. The place where I go for all my health and wellness supplements is Vita Supreme. Vita Supreme uses all organic ingredients and has a wide range of supplement options that can help with immune support, heart health, energy, mental health, pain relief, sleep, anti aging, digestion, diabetes, and more. Their products have helped me reduce joint pain and increase vibrancy. And if you read their online testimonials, you'll find glowing endorsements from their customers who, at every age and stage of life are feeling better than ever. Vita Supreme believes that health radiates from the inside out. And I can tell you from personal experience that their supplements have made a positive difference in my life. To receive 10% off your first order, go to vitasupreme.com pages diversity. Your discount will be applied at checkout. There's no code required. Also, as a special offer with your first order, you can receive a free 15-minute coaching session with one of their wellness experts to find out more about what you can do to improve your health and your habits. Just send your name and preferred contact information to support at vitasupreme.com. Once again, to get 10% off your first order, go to vitasupreme.com pages diversity. And to receive your free coaching session, email support at vitasupreme.com and tell them the Demystifying Diversity podcast sent you. Through innovative and dynamic educational initiatives, Temple University's Fox School of Business provides students with real world, local and global business opportunities. At the Fox School of Business, you can choose from a wide range of undergraduate, graduate certificate and continuing educational programs. Whatever your academic and professional path, you'll learn practical strategies for workplace success at a university that is committed to encouraging and respecting diversity in all forms and perspectives. The Fox School of Business, which includes the Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture, has built an inclusive, welcoming environment where everyone is emboldened to reach their full potential. So if you want to be in a learning environment that will empower you to cultivate your capacity for empathy and profitability, go to fox.temple.edu DDP for more on how you can learn from world-class DEI-focused faculty and become an inclusive leader in the workplace. So if you want to be in a learning environment that will empower you to cultivate your capacity for empathy and profitability, go to fox.temple.edu slash DDP For more on how you can learn from world-class DEI-focused faculty and become an inclusive leader in the workforce, with options for students and professionals at every stage of life, including undergraduate, graduate certificate, and continuing educational programs, the Fox School of Business has something just right for you. So make sure to check out fox.temple.edu ddp to learn more. Every human being holds within themselves a multitude of interconnecting, intersecting, and sometimes seemingly paradoxical identities and experiences. And excluding people or parts of people has real ramifications. Here's Michael again.
5: There were many times when I had to leave parts of me at home or in the car, or at least not bring that to work. And there's things I just couldn't talk about. You know, it's like, oh, well, why are you having this problem? It's like, well, I really can't say. And this, I remember, there were times when I know I was struggling and it was an, impacting my health. And, and I just couldn't come out and say exactly what was happening, or or I chose not to, I guess is a better way to put it. So that does take a, a lot of energy and, and then can impact the work environment. I think not only because you're diverting. I was diverting mental capacity into managing this thing about me versus releasing it altogether.
0: The self-segmenting and compartmentalization Michael described isn't unique to his experiences. Sadly, it's extremely commonplace among LGBTQ plus folks who don't feel they're safe to be out at work. Leora Eisenstadt is an associate professor in the Department of Legal Studies at the Fox School of Business at Temple University, a Murray Schusterman Research Fellow, the Director for the Center of Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture, Sedwick and an assistant producer and consultant for the Demystifying Diversity podcast. Leora told me about a panel discussion during a recent conference coordinated by SEDWIC in which a Temple alumni shared about his experience of being unable to be himself at work.
8: During this conference that we just had last week on LGBTQ issues in the workplace, and we had an alumni panel, and one of the, the people said before he came out at work, he was spending so much energy closeting himself that he wasn't an effective, as effective of a worker as he could be. I think it's the energy piece. I think... If you're worried all the time about concealing who you are, you are not using the fullness of your energy towards what your employer wants you to be putting it towards, right? You're not as creative. You're not as engaged. You're not as gregarious. You're just not your full self because you're expending so much energy keeping that full self down.
0: Segmenting and compartmentalizing is something many individuals who hold underrepresented identities experience. And when a person holds multiple marginalized identities simultaneously, the effect of that segmentation and compartmentalization can occur on multiple levels at the same time. No doubt you've heard the word intersectionality, a term introduced by civil rights advocate, critical race and gender studies scholar and educator, Kimberly Williams Crenshaw. Well, the concept of intersectionality describes the complex, cumulative way in which the effects of multiple forms of discrimination, such as racism, sexism, and classism, combine, overlap, and intersect to impact marginalized individuals or groups. During our time together, LaTanya Wilkins shared that in her view, it is essential to take an intersectional approach to understanding our identities and experiences. LaTanya is the founder of the Change Coaches LLC, an organization dedicated to creating revolutionary leadership development, culture change, and extraordinary personal growth. She's also the author of Leading Below the Surface, How to Build Real and Psychologically Safe Relationships with People Who Are Different from You.
9: I think moving through the world, people didn't know what to do with me because they had never really met anyone like me. So they were like, I have to put you in a box. I have to, it's like, we have these schemas, right? And we're yeah. like, wait, how do I talk to this person? It's weird. Like she's a black woman, but she's kind of in drive. She's not like other black women that I know, you know, cause there's not that many, right? So you're like, how do I do this? How do I do this? And so it's getting below the surface with people to bring all their identities to the table. And this has to do a lot with intersectionality because there is this fluidity in who we are and like yeah. what identities come to the table. I mean, my Black identity is always front and center. My queer identity, it's, you know, it's something that it's it's probably, you know, most people probably pick up on it. It's probably visible in some ways, but it's something that if, you're, if I'm walking down the street, probably someone's not thinking about it, right? It's the Black identity, right? The woman identity, like I'm that, but I don't identify as much with that. It's not as front and center. And then there's all the other uh, intersectionalities like socioeconomical and all those types of things you kind of flow in and out of different identities at different times. Right. And the black identity is kind of like the foundation. Like Mm -hmm. that doesn't go away. You have like cars on the road, but the black identity is the road, right? Like that road goes nowhere. It holds everything else up, but that's, or it threads everything else together. Or it's like the nucleus, but then there's all these other things. And yeah, if only we could accept humans that way. Cause it's like when people come out at work as queer or trans or whatever, it's like, oh, and that's all people see you as after that. But if we could see people more for what they're going to bring to the table because of this, or how you might need to adjust because of this, or how can you connect with them because of this instead of, yeah, well, this is the queer person on the team. And it's like, we still have a really hard time doing this. We just have a long way to go with that. But yes, we're definitely fluid
0: Creating the types of workplaces LaTanya spoke about, workplaces where embracing the vastness of who people are and the intersections they bring with them, isn't only helpful to marginalized employees. It leads to a workplace culture in which it becomes possible for individuals of all identities to maximize their talent and encourages greater contribution from individuals and teams. In speaking with Kelly Clark, Kelly shared with me that she sees embracing diversity as being much broader than embracing diverse identities, but is also incorporating the need to be inclusive of diverse experiences and perspectives. Kelly is Chief Culture Officer at Aeon United and directs the firm's strategies for inclusive people leadership and culture initiatives. She played a pivotal role in scaling Aeon's signature cultural workshop, leading Aeon United to reach more than 8,000 colleagues virtually while maintaining more than 98% positive feedback.
8: My family is an LGBT family, and so what is it like for me as an LGBTQ woman to be in the workplace versus what is it like for somebody on my team who's a black woman to be in the workplace versus what is it like for my colleague who immigrated to the United States and had to learn another language and is constantly doing translating in their mind. There's that level, but there's also like but what if we take somebody who's always studied finance and have them take that analytical brain and apply it to a people problem? Like what happens when that connection is made? And so I think we sometimes can constrict how we think about what diversity looks like, but it's like there's a principle that just believing that if we bring others into the conversation, we're going to get a better result. And that otherness can be big and beautiful and not confined to the way that we maybe traditionally might describe it.
0: At Aon and at other organizations where individuals are invited to bring however much of themselves they choose to their work, outcomes improve. And by that, I mean a wide range of outcomes from productivity to mental health, to retention, to profitability. It makes sense After all, companies that embrace diversity, equity, and inclusion are probably more likely to have a growth mindset and to foster environments where employees can be themselves, which then leads those employees to contribute their unique ideas, which then leads to greater innovation. You get the point. But not all of us work for others. Those I spoke with who are entrepreneurs told me that they are far less tempted to engage in self-concealment and far more comfortable expressing themselves both as they are and as they evolve than they were when they were working exclusively for others. Here's A.C. again.
1: I use myself as an example. The way that I have identified through the years has changed based on my access to language I didn't have the language for it. I didn't know that there were other people that were like me and that there was a term for that. And so sometimes we have to allow space for individuals to gain access to, you know, knowledge and understanding and language and then to utilize it once they've gained access to it.
0: But just because for many entrepreneurs, our brand is often ourselves, that doesn't mean we can
2: bring all of who we are everywhere here's Sky. I'm very public about my bisexuality and I'm very public about my non-binary identity. And I think those exist in different ways. I think part of why I'm so public about my bisexual identity is that I came out later in life. And so I I came out when I was 27-ish, I think like a year earlier to myself. And part of being open about that identity is like people had seen me in one way for so many years that there was like whether or not this was actually true perhaps a necessity of claiming and saying like this is who i am this is contrary to the assumptions that might have been gathered if you've known me a long time this is an identity that's important to me. And it's important to me because it affects how I walk through the world, how I interact with people, how I'm thinking about things all the time. And then I think in terms of my non-binary identity, that took me even longer to come to. And one of the things that I think a lot about is because people don't necessarily see that, I think it's hard to see like non-binary identity is not actually a thing that you can see. You can't look at a person and, and be like, that is a non-binary person because there's no way to look non-binary. Mm-hmm. And so for me, the claiming of it is through language. It's through coming to the table and saying, this is a way that I identify. these are my pronouns. please use them. And for me, that's that's actually a necessity and being seen in my wholeness is like, coming to the table through language. Now I am very public about it. And there are circumstances in which I don't, like in which like people just assume that I'm a woman. Like I don't feel safe in that scenario. I just don't want to say anything. Like one example is like my landlord. I don't, and will never come out to my landlord, even though there are pride flags all over my house. (laughs) Like, But it's still like, He's made an assumption and we're going to stay there because I don't necessarily know what the reaction is going to be. It's more important to me to maintain the safety of not being out in that context than it is to be, like, full as a human being.
0: For many members of the LGBTQ community, it's not entirely safe or comfortable to be all of ourselves everywhere. And to be fair, it's probably not required to be closeted in every context either. Also, even when someone is out, that doesn't necessarily mean they're wholeheartedly embraced or that those around them encourage them to be fully self-expressed. Travel told me about how prior to becoming a freelance journalist, they faced a lot of editorial pushback, even though they were out at work and even though they covered LGBTQ plus and BIPOC stories.
6: It was a lot of push and pull, if I'm being quite honest got in trouble a lot, had to have a lot of conversations with editors and editors-in-chief about my quote-unquote behavior. There were a lot of constrictions around me while I was working at the LA Times because of the, these ideas about tradition and what a journalist is supposed to be. And I necessarily did not check any of those boxes, but I knew that it was important for me to like be true to myself be true to my voice as much as possible, and to like, carve out my own space where I could. Travell
0: managed to carve out their own space, so much so that they have been an integral part of changing the landscape for Black, queer, and trans journalists coming up behind them. Today, working in-house for a mainstream print publication is hopefully a less contentious experience for others because of those like Travel who came to stay and, in their words, to slay.
6: I do think that things are changing. I do feel like there are people, largely black and brown folks, queer and trans folks who are in these newsrooms who are shaking the table, who are pushing back on that history. And so hopefully we'll begin to see a news media ecosystem that is more inclusive and more reflective of the the truthfulness of our society as a whole.
0: Imagine having the kind of work-life and work relationships where people can bring themselves forward and share openly. Tell me that's not going to encourage employees to do their best, most innovative work, even if we're self-employed and don't have any employees.
6: I am my most free right now as a freelancer.
0: I'm my most free too, and I'd like to believe that with greater authenticity, my work improves. But being an entrepreneur isn't easy by any means, and it's also not the only type of workplace experience that allows for LGBTQ plus folks to show up as our full selves. Any workplace that offers an environment where LGBTQ plus individuals can bring their skills and experiences forward is going to benefit immensely because so many of us LGBTQ plus individuals have developed skills that are inextricably linked to our identities. For instance, members of the LGBTQ plus community often develop the capacities for risk assessment, innovation, and independence, and tend to be, of necessity, resilient. To be clear, we shouldn't have to adopt adaptive strategies, but those that do tend to have a lot to offer, personally and professionally.
10: Hey listeners, Zach here. Darylis and I are so grateful you've tuned in to season three of the Demystifying Diversity Podcast. You probably know by now that we've partnered with Temple University's Fox School of Business to bring you this special season dedicated to DEI in the workplace. With that in mind, we ask that you send us your work-related DEI questions by calling 844-888-8148, just leave a message with your question, or send us a note through our website, www.DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com. As always, we'll be joined by some amazing guest experts and thought leaders who can also weigh in on whatever questions you have. Again, the number is 844-888-8148 or message us through our website, DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com. Who knows, your voice or your question may just make it into one of our Q&A episodes. Happy listening.
0: Here's Sky again.
2: Came out as non-binary while I was working for a trans-owned DEI firm. Mm -hmm. And I was like working from home because of context of the pandemic. And then I started entering into spaces again that were not that context, like very different from that context. And what happened was (laughs) I was like, whoa, (laughs) it's really hard. Not, not that I wasn't having that experience. Like I'm a human in the world, but I also like surround myself with people who are affirming my identity. So when I came into a different context, I was like, ah, yes, I now have an understanding of like what it is to try to exist as the fullness of who I am inside this context. And I think that's a useful experience. It's a hurtful experience, but it's a useful experience in some way because it helps me calibrate how I'm doing that and also have a broader understanding of the context, like outside of some of the bubbles in which I operate.
0: Broadening our understandings and building awareness helps us to make sense of ourselves and our own experiences, and it also enables us to be more empathetic and honoring of the experiences and identities of others. For instance, James Barnes is a corporate trainer, coach, and public speaker whose own transition has equipped him to teach companies, schools, hospitals, and other organizations to create safe, uplifting, and empowering environments for LGBTQ individuals with a special emphasis on serving transgender adults and youth. James told me that it was only through developing his own retrospective understanding of his experiences of feeling unsafe being himself that he discovered his passion for helping other LGBTQ plus folks. He said he wants to be part of creating a world where other trans men won't have to suffer in the same ways he did.
11: I remember in middle school when I was suicidal and I didn't know why. And I remember in college when I was suicidal, I didn't know why. And then I had this specific like breakdown and I could literally draw the dots of everything. And it was like on a beautiful mind where everything like (laughs) comes together. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is solvable. We can actually take a step back. And if I had been able in middle school to do this while doing that, while doing this, I never would have struggled with being suicidal. And it was like this like, oh, fuck, I've got to help people. And it was like, I have purpose. And so I think that it's terrible that these things have to happen. But some of the most brilliant minds I know are people who are from marginalized groups who are just resilient. They just do not give a fuck and they are going to do everything they can to make the world better or to show up as themselves or to make it safer for other people or whatever it may be they show up and they have gumption and it is just beautiful and so it's terrible that it's like the phoenix that you have to like go through the fire but then you come out and you're just like dang you are a rock star
0: Something I noticed while interviewing the LGBTQ plus rock stars whose voices you're hearing in this episode was that each of them, without exception, seemed to possess the ability to evaluate situations quickly and effectively and to determine how much of themselves to share. I asked Caroline Heffernan about that. How do you kind of balance the emotional and the logistical elements? This is going to be a really weird thing to say,
7: but I honestly think it's a skill set from being closeted for a few years, right? Like I had to police my face or I had to like police what I said, or I couldn't say what I was always thinking because that would have outed me. So it's weird to say that it's a skill set that that experience provided me because it's not something that most, I wouldn't advise people being closeted if they can afford it. But I do think that I know how to control a reaction I know how to pick my words very intentionally and be calm and not be reactionary because of that experience where I, I, you know, I wasn't going to be, or I couldn't, or I didn't feel as though I could in those situations. And I do genuinely think that people are well-intentioned and maybe that's me being naive. It probably is. But it can be just a lack of understanding and just their narrow worldview or the fact that they haven't been exposed to something, whereas, you know, I've had a life that has exposed me to more discriminatory behavior than others. And that doesn't mean that I'm better. It just means that I have more experience in that particular area, unfortunately.
0: Leaving the debate about intentions aside, it is unfortunate that so many LGBTQ plus folks have experienced or will experience discriminatory behavior, often in the workplace. In fact, according to UCLA School of Law's Williams Institute, 45.5% of LGBTQ plus employees report experiencing unfair treatment at work, including being fired, not hired, or harassed because of their sexual orientation or gender identity at some point in their professional lives. For those I spoke with, the desire to ensure that others don't face the same adversities they've faced is part of what inspires them to be advocates, even in the face of adversity, and even once they've moved to work situations that are safe and supportive. Travel told me that they hope their work can enable others to feel seen, heard, and represented. And that the moments when they feel they are correcting the record by ensuring queer, trans, and Black representation are a reminder that their real work is to leave behind a legacy.
6: Literally this morning, Justin Ray is a reporter at the Los Angeles Times. Young, Black, queer man who's a reporter at the LA Times right now. And this is something he tweeted this morning. I was working on an Instagram post around it because I, was, I got so emotional over it when I read it. But Justin says, quote, I'm shocked by how many times I have an idea for a story. And when I searched the LA Times archives to see if it was already done, it was by Travell Anderson every time. And like that, I'm getting emotional all over again because like that is why I do this work. That is why I... Keep doing this work in spite of all of the bullshit that we come up against. Because I want folks to have those little crumbs of existence that they can access to know that, like, one, folks have done it before, and therefore I can do it today. But also, that like, we are all part of a collective, we are all part of a continuous story that began back in the day back in the motherland with the storytellers the griots of our communities who carried on our stories as a people and now today live through the work of you and I and everybody else who are at the core storytellers and like Is that type of stuff that keeps me going, that affirms all of the decisions that I've made in the past, even the ones where I was like, girl, you about to get fired, girl, you better calm. down, girl, what are you doing? But like, that is why I do all of this because yes, it's about the work, but it also is about unlocking that small part in many of our minds where we hold our imagination. And so many of us Based on our life experience, we've been told that we have to stop dreaming, that we have to stop imagining the best for ourselves and those around us. And I reject that. I'm going to dream and imagine a world to the day I die. And it's because it's not about me manifesting that world necessarily while I'm on this earth. But it is about ensuring that those things that I'm thinking of are possible continue and somebody else is able to pick them up. If I'm not able to get to the promised land, I want somebody that comes after me who reads the work that I'm doing to be able to make it to the promised land. Because in them making it, I will have made it already.
0: James told me that for some, the ability to dream can be the difference between life and death.
11: Oftentimes, when I talk to a trans individual and I'll say, cause a lot of times they'll message me and say, I don't know if I'm trans or not. And I'll say, okay, well picture yourself five years from now and then picture yourself 10 and then try to go really far and picture yourself 60 years from now. Oftentimes LGBTQ youth do not picture themselves as adults. And I do believe that that is partially why there is such a high suicide rate is because they don't see themselves past where they're at. And it's not their fault. What's happened is we as society have said, you don't get to become the grandpa. You're a female. You don't get to be a grandpa someday. You don't get to be a husband. Even though gay marriage has passed, they'll still be like, you know, it's not right or whatever. Or you, you're, you're never going to find love. And so I have these youth, I'll tell them, picture that. And they'll be like, that was such a hard thing for me to actually do. But now I'm really excited to get out of college or mm-hmm. to get into college or to become A doctor or a firefighter who, whatever it is, like has a mustache, like the cliches, or there's all these silly things that you say. But every once in a while, like for me, that's how I knew I was trans, is I pictured my ideal life and I was sitting very cliche, sitting on a rocking chair on like a cute little like farmer style house with my wife next to me. And I was a grandpa with a bunch of grandkids. And I'd never thought, I'd never thought about my future that far. And it was very therapeutic. And so my goal in life is to create this environment where youth get to think about their future and the impact that they want to make and the person that they want to be. And that's, I think, my goal. And that that when somebody says like, you know, what do you want to be remembered for?" which I think is a question that we should all ask ourselves, is what do you want to be remembered for? That's what I want to be remembered for, is giving youth the gift of seeing their future.
0: Seeing the future is important, as is inclusion in the present. It's also essential to honor those who came before us for their contributions and their willingness to struggle, which has enabled greater safety for the rest of us. Here's Michael again.
5: Take advantage of all the opportunities that the people before you have bestowed upon you. Um, And don't take those for granted. Also, don't turn your back on those people either. There are a lot of lonely, older gay people. And we've, my husband and I have been, been blessed to have had some of them as friends over the years. And they're super interesting people in the stories they tell you about, like working for the government in the 1950s through the, the pink scare. I bet a lot of people don't even know what that is, right? With this persecution, there was the persecution, you know, to root out the communists, but then there was the persecution to root out the homosexuals because of fear of blackmailing by the communists. So really bizarre lines of thinking back then. But those folks have stories to tell and they're really interesting people. And on the flip side to people my age and even older is don't turn your back on the younger people either and don't dismiss them, all right? Because they're going to take that baton. They're going to take the torch. They're going to continue marching. They're going to continue to put energy into this They're going to continue to help change things for the better. It's not going to happen overnight. And there's the pendulum swings. Uh, It can swing both ways, but I've always been a glass half full type of person and and realized that it is going to get better. We might go through some tough times ahead, but ultimately it's going to get better if not for us, for the, the people that follow in our footsteps
0: appreciating those who came before us and working towards a better future for upcoming generations are interconnected. Together, these things support us in bringing our personal histories forward in ways that can help us professionally. For instance, LaTanya Wilkin shared with me that it was her grandmother who taught her how to be a below-the-surface leader, which is what LaTanya now teaches others through coaching, workshops, speaking, and her book. Leading Below the Surface, How to Build Real and Psychologically Safe Relationships with People Who Are Different from You. After LaTonya mentioned that she wanted to pass on to others the gifts that her grandmother had given her, I asked her if she could share more about those gifts.
9: Whenever I talk about this, I get a little emotional because she did so much. So as a child, I was different. My background is very religious. My family was very religious. I loved church but I remember one day they wouldn't let me in church because I, I wasn't wearing a dress. And that's the thing with this type of religion that I was in at the time, girls had to wear dresses, but boys could do whatever they wanted, but the girls had to wear dresses, right? This doesn't make any sense. And I, hopefully they don't do that anymore. I don't know about this particular religion. And I was never a person to wear dresses like that. I was never a person to wear pink. And I still remember this day. I remember when I was in junior high, high school, and I was coming into myself, and I was very tomboyish, as my mom would call it, and androgynous is what I would say now. And I remember coming to dinner at my grandma's. It was Thanksgiving, and I remember I'd driven separately, and I dressed how I wanted to dress. And it was interesting because when I walked in, My mother was like, you're not dressed up enough for Thanksgiving. And I was like, I don't really know what that means. And my grandma was just like, you look great. You know, I really love that hat that you're wearing. She's like, I want that hat. You just look really good. And when she said that, the whole energy in the room changed. She was just so influential in my family that when she was accepting, everybody else was accepting. And that's her. That was her entire life. She was just big light that really connected with people who are different from her. I learned this from her. I'm really good at it. And she also was just very accepting and she inspired other people to do the same.
10: Hey listeners, Zach James here, partner and marketing manager of the Demystifying Diversity Podcast. And I wanted to share with you some of the great things we're doing in the DEI space. Since the beginning of 2020, Myself, Darelease and our DEI team have facilitated numerous corporate trainings, engaging workshops, one-on-one coaching sessions, and so much more, both virtual and in person. To find out how you can work with us, whether you are an individual or representing an organization, school, corporation, or any other type of group seeking diversity, equity, and inclusion education, head over to DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com backslash DEI services to send us a message or to fill out our DEI survey. Darylise is a DEI subject matter expert, having interviewed over 300 people, becoming a TEDx speaker, as well as the author of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. Together, we can help you up-level your DEI skills to improve your productivity, profitability, and interpersonal relationships. So connect with us at DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com backslash DEI services and get yourself a copy of Darylise's book, Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity. And don't forget the workbook too. Happy learning.
0: Assuming organizations want to create safer, more inclusive spaces for LGBTQ plus folks, what should they do? One action that can have an organization wide impact can be to conduct company wide or leadership-wide trainings. And to be clear, I mean trainings conducted by qualified and yes, probably charismatic professionals, which is very different than asking your LGBTQ plus employees to educate their coworkers about LGBTQ plus issues. Here's James again.
11: One of the things when people say, Why should we hire you and I'll say all those things? And the last thing I end on is you're Paying for my charm. I am very open about it. You're paying me because I can handle some very uncomfortable conversations with a smile on my face and help turn your employees into allies. Your employee who is angry at their coworkers because they've been harassing them can't do that. And that's not their job to put a smile on their face all of a sudden. And you're putting them in these really uncomfortable conversations. And also, they don't have perspective. They're angry, which might be valid, but They're not going to want to talk about creating a transition plan. They're not going to want to talk about pronouns. Let's talk about email signatures or let's talk about badges. They're just going to be like, why aren't you paying for my medical care? And all of those things are fair. But when you're wanting to build long term change, you need someone who can come in and without any frustration, any bias, just say, hey, let's work together. Let's create a solution. And an employee can't do that. And so you're asking these employees to detach from real discrimination or real frustration. And not everyone knows about a transition plan. Not everybody knows the very simple things a company can do. And it puts so much pressure on that employee to try to think of a solution that they're not going to be able to think of. And like they're not an expert and they're looking at it through their lens.
0: Trainings can have a tremendous positive impact on organizational culture, for a host of different reasons and in a myriad of different ways, some obvious, others subtle. They offer tangible skills that people can incorporate into their interactions, which improves the daily experiences of employees of all identities, and they help diffuse tension and encourage constructive conversations. They also show LGBTQ plus employees that they have allies, and they show non-LGBTQ employees that an organization is serious about creating an affirming culture, which reduces the likelihood of discrimination. Having said that, there's a palpable difference between performative allyship and an ongoing commitment to a culture of inclusion and celebration.
11: The biggest negative I'm having right now showing up as a corporate trainer for LGBTQ, it's a specific type of diversity training, is companies are only wanting to hire me in pride. And it's been really hard to try to build a career off of that, but also... I wouldn't say emotionally, but I think just representation wise, it annoys the shit out of me because not only as a business owner, nobody can survive off of one month a year. I mean, unless you're doing some really, really awesome work, but also as somebody who the whole work I'm doing is for representation. I tell these companies when you only are hiring me for pride, what it's telling your employees Not just the trans employees, but the people who treat the trans employees a certain way that you as a company only care about them during one month and communicates to your employees that it's performative. And so that's been my biggest frustration is I'm all for having a pride event, but have me come back, hire me in January, and then say to toot my own horn, you all loved him. We wanted to bring him back for pride. That's a cool thing. It shows, one, that you are investing in the same type of creators and employees are going to love that. But two, it shows all of the haters that work there, the transphobic people. This company's serious about it and you don't get to discriminate. You don't get to harass.
0: Another action that organizations can take to prevent against discrimination and harassment is to ensure that leaders are invested in creating respectful workplace environments. Axe, whose organizational experience spans military and civilian sectors, shared with me that it's important to instill values of equity and inclusion among leaders. In fact, without that, he said, inclusion initiatives will lack the necessary traction.
4: So I think the first thing is to talk to leaders and get a sense of where they are on this issue and how serious they are and what sort of stake are they willing to put behind that to remedy and and that's very tell right so i'll give you an example involving my contributions to the dialogue involving uh, inclusion of sexual minorities in the military somewhere along i guess it would have been 2010 when president obama expressed his intent to change the law that prohibited sexual minorities from serving openly in service of their nation And so the the military was tasked to review the issue and to come up with a strategy to recommend to the president what they should do. So as part of that, I was asked to look at the question of what will happen to cohesion, readiness, effectiveness of the military and military units if and when don't ask, don't tell, is repealed. And so I did a lot of research to help build understanding to that. And it came down to this. I said, you know, We know a lot about how groups interact with one another and how to make that happen and how to make them effective. And so that's not gonna be an issue. What's gonna be an issue is what leaders do. So fortunately, the military is good at developing leaders, enforcing and changing behavior. And so really where you have to go is to educate and enable and empower your leaders to do what it is that you want to have done be it repeal or sustain don't ask don't tell fortunately we saw the, the more appropriate higher ground so to speak and, and we repealed don't ask don't tell and really the emphasis came on building leadership and preparing leadership to help the military transition and enact that policy and unsurprisingly don't ask don't tell came and went without much fanfare. Why? Because we properly prepared leaders to do what needed to be done. The military didn't fall apart. It was just another day.
0: Another day, another dollar. Workplaces that create cultures where people can show up as themselves are less likely to experience lawsuits, lack of productivity, contentious environments, or any of the other corrosive threads that are part and parcel of toxic environments. That doesn't mean that even the safest, most allied organizations and even the most affirming, most woke individuals won't ever make mistakes. We all mess up. And if and when we do, Sky
2: had some helpful advice. The biggest thing that you can do when you've messed up is correct yourself and say like a brief apology and then move on. It should go without
0: saying that mistakes are a lot easier to forgive when we... A, don't continue to repeat them, and B, have developed safe and supportive environments where most of our interactions are positive. And the importance of what is often referred to as either emotional or psychological safety can't be overstated. I asked AC to speak about what psychological safety means to him.
1: For me, when I'm speaking of emotional safety, I am speaking about my ability to show up and express in a very authentic and genuine way who I am, what I believe, how I feel, and to know that it is okay to do that. We're not talking about someone registering agreement with me. That's not what we're talking about. But that even if you don't agree, it is still safe. And by safe, I mean free of attack, free from animus, free from threat, of violence, physical or otherwise, right? Because we can engage in violence in ways that are not physical towards other people. And so knowing that I can share the depths of who I am and how I really feel, and I can expose those tender places of myself and know that I'm not going to be attacked, that is what emotional safety is for me. Even if on the other end of this, You don't necessarily see things the way that I see things. Just knowing that it's okay for me to have this lived experience and to have this lens and to have this perception, just knowing that it's okay for me to have it, whether you have it or not, is where safety lies.
0: We can and should work to create safe spaces for folks. At the same time, it's important to acknowledge the enduring impact of lack of safety. Here's Michael again.
5: Go back to what is almost 30 years ago now, and that outing, really, it stung. It stung, and that, that pain never has really subsided. So there's, a, there's defensiveness that I know I'm always walking around with. But I do see that I have an opportunity to, well, I guess, take calculated risks. Don't be afraid to let that, that guard down. That's it's a struggle. It's something I have to work on, definitely.
0: In my work, I encourage people to practice expanding their capacity for empathy. But I wonder, can empathy, the ability to share in the feelings and experiences of another, sometimes be an impediment? Can it give the impression that we have to understand a person in order to accept them? What if we simply took our colleagues at their words and stood
2: up for each other? Here's what Sky had to say about that. Don't create contingencies for people to exist as they are. Don't make it predicated on whether or not you believe them or like understand it or whatever. I'm in a context right now, actually, where I'm being misgendered all the time. And I have one person in that context, multiple people, but like one person particularly who's really like, I hear her correcting people all the time. And it makes a huge difference because then I do not have to. And she's also come to me and asked, like, how would you like me to handle this? That's a big part of it, too. And so be the person that is willing to take on the discomfort so that the other person doesn't have to.
0: Understanding isn't actually a prerequisite for allyship. Also, when it comes to implementing equitable actions and attitudes, I would encourage you to move beyond the golden rule. Instead of treating others as we want to be treated, what about treating others as they want to be treated? And to take it one step further, what if we didn't ask them to prove the validity of their identity in order
2: to do that? I don't always, from people that I'm close to, mind talking about my actual experience of my gender. But also that shouldn't be a prerequisite to ever. That shouldn't ever be a prerequisite to meeting someone where they've asked to be met or to referring to someone to the way that they've asked to be referred to. You don't have to understand why to respect it. You just don't. You don't have to understand what it means to someone in order to respect it. And I think people think that it will help. Like they're like, oh, if I can just understand, like I can do this. And I'm like, actually, you just need to retrain your brain. Retraining our brains and revising our behavior
0: can take investment and effort, or it can be easy. Personally, I've found that when it comes to the biases I hold, sometimes all that's needed to let go of an incorrect assumption is to get to know someone with a distinctly different experience and to embrace our shared humanity. Not necessarily because I get all that they've been through, but because I see them as a well-rounded, multifaceted person. AC put it beautifully.
1: I tell people all the time, and I really, really mean this, to my core, I believe this. It is hard to hate up close. When something is this far distant enigmatic thing that you don't actually engage with on a personal level, it's really, really easy to demonize it. It's really, really easy to hate, but it is hard to hate up close. And so when we actually have meaningful interaction and connection with people that are not like us, someone of a different race, a different ethnicity, someone who has a different love style, Or whatever the case might be, when we're able to engage with them in a meaningful way and see their humanity and see just who they are and the beauty of who they are, it is so hard, so hard to hate up close. It takes effort, that's for sure.
0: In order to truly be close to someone, we have to make it safe for them to be themselves. We have to allow ourselves to get close, both in terms of proximity and in terms of connection. Even though it doesn't qualify as a story about a workplace experience, I wanted to share something Kelly shared with me about the impact of allyship in her personal life from those who are close to her, quite literally. It's a story about her neighbors.
8: This is a credit to my neighborhood and what it looks like, what I think at the heart of what, when we're trying to drive inclusive environments and diverse teams, what happened on my block. So in June, it's pretty normal to see pride flags hanging around our community. We had moved, recently moved into our neighborhood and our flag was torn down and we were like, what, are we in an inclusive environment? Feeling a little violated We didn't do anything about it, but it felt a way to us. And we told a couple neighbors and they're like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Like that doesn't happen here. A year goes by. And this past summer, June came and went and more pride flags came up. And then our neighbor's flag was torn down off their house in July. And so they sent out an email to the, or we have a group email for our block. And support started pouring in. And one neighbor said, I'm going to the store today and I'm going to buy a pride flag. If anybody wants one for their house, let me know by three o'clock and I'll buy as many as we need. And I'm going to hang my flag up today, but I'll make, I'll drop one off on your porch if you need it. And there are like 14 houses on my block. And before the end of the next day, there were 14 pride flags hanging on our street. And it's the story of what one person taking that step and saying, I'm going to do the thing. And then everybody else going like, wait, I have my pride flags just in my garage. I'll just, I'm hanging it up. So we have rainbow flags up and down our block. And I was moved, my wife was moved, but I'll tell you what my daughter did. She put on her rollerblades and rollerbladed up and down the street and counted the houses and counted the flags and counted how many people had theirs up and who was putting it up. And -and so-and-so she saw hanging it. And I will tell you, while it meant something for me, what it did in my daughter to see how I should look like, it is something she will never forget. And I think as leaders and people who are raising the next generation and leading the next generation we can talk about this stuff all day long but like are we going to hang up our pride flags and are we going to do the thing so that the next generation feels more confident in their own allyship and more aware of how they can show up for each other and that is who i want to be i want to be my neighbor who sent that note
0: Kelly's neighborhood isn't comprised of all LGBTQ plus families. It's full of people who have made the decision to engage in empowered allyship, people who are willing to be there for one another and to discover the power of unity through diversity. People who will leverage their privilege so that others can be out and proud.
8: Not everybody's gay on my street, but. There are families who are made up of all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds. And it made it a little bit more of a family. You know, it feels like a family here. It feels like, I know, I know where my my allies are at the end of the day. And we do live in an inclusive community, but there are still things that happen. And what I would say is I feel more comfortable talking about my family here and we have a mix of all kinds of families on the block. But for me, it's given me more confidence when I go places and something is in kind of a heteronormative framing or somebody says something that doesn't apply to our family. I feel a little bit more comfortable speaking up because I know when I'm going home, my people have got my back. And I've explained this to other people, but I think that's where sort of privilege comes in. The folks that are kind of like straight white Americans living their lives didn't have to hang up a pride flag. They didn't have to put up a Black Lives Matter sign in their yard. They don't have to put up a trans flag, but they are. And so when we can use our privilege in that way to just continue to have a voice in the conversation, to In a meeting, if it's like the extroverts are all talking and the introvert isn't, how do you create a space for introverted leadership? How are you aware of who's in the room and whose voices are at the table and whose need to be invited in and then use your privilege to do that?
0: Let's make a commitment to having the backs of LGBTQ plus folks in our neighborhoods, our communities, our families and our workplaces so that we can create environments where people can be out at work if they choose and can share as much of themselves as they want. Because they know that who they are will be celebrated and that we're all willing to hang our literal and metaphorical flags in support and solidarity.
5: Can we move forward differently to foster greater equity? Even if we don't always understand fairness, we can assure should demand. Let's embrace one another. Single colleagues, working mothers, people of all points of view. Can we see each
4: other through?
8: Thank
0: you for listening to this episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. Season three of the Demystifying Diversity podcast will center around topics of diversity, equity, and inclusion at work, and is brought to you in partnership with Temple University's Fox School of Business Center for Ethics, Diversity, and Workplace Culture, Sedwick. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, like us, and take a few minutes to leave a positive review, which helps spread the word about what we're up to. And if you'd like to ask us a question about this episode, any previous episode, or anything having to do with diversity, especially in the workplace, please call 844-888-8148 and leave a message with your question or visit our website, DemystifyingDiversityPodcast.com, where you can ask a question, subscribe to our newsletter, and find out about our DEI services. Thank you to this episode's guests. A.C. Folks, Sky Koaleski, Liz Brown, Armando X. Estrada, Axe, Michael Shermer, Travell Anderson, Caroline Heffernan, Leora Eisenstadt, LaTanya Wilkins, Kelly Clark, and James Barnes, and to our episode sponsor, Vita Supreme. Every episode of this season of the Demystifying Diversity podcast is written, reported, and produced by me, Darylise Lyons, with Azaria Keyes, Assistant Director of Sedwick, Co-Producer and Coordination Consultant, Leora Eisenstadt, Sedwick Director, Assistant Producer and Consultant, Zach James, Co-Collaborator and Marketing Manager, Paul Kondo, Assistant Producer and Editor. Jimmy Goodman at Leopard Studio, audio technician and consultant, Stuart Crance, production and development assistant, and Sonny Taylor, content editor and creative collaborator. The music you heard is Demystifying Diversity, an original composition, the lyrics of which were written by me, Darylise Lyons, in collaboration with Ramon Beeftink, who also created all the music and performed vocals and instrumentals. If you'd like to explore these topics outside of the podcast, pick up a copy of Demystifying Diversity, Embracing Our Shared Humanity, wherever books are sold. Join us next week for a question and answer episode. And in the meantime, let's keep trying to make this a better, more inclusive world.